Hi, welcome to the new episode of Inclusive World Podcast. Today, I'm joined by the food creative, Barney Powell, who through supper clubs, zines, art and cooking is querying the universal act of eating. After working as a chef, Barney studied art and ecology at Goldsmiths. Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to talk about everything that you've done and what you're going to be building through next. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. I mean, what you're doing with all of your um, supper clubs and every all your work focusing on food is so interesting. When I first sort of saw what you were doing on Instagram, I was so amazed and inspired by the idea that you could queer anything, particularly food. Like, what was the journey to queering food? How did you begin that process? Thank you. Um, that's a very kind uh, introduction. I guess, I mean, food has always been an interest, obviously, having worked as a chef, but the, not that the places that I worked in were very rigid in terms of like the whole chef structure but the the kind of like the the day-to-day repetition and everything just really wasn't that inspiring to me and I've always grown up doing art and studying art in different ways and so I kind of wanted to find a medium or yeah find find a way to communicate my thinking and I think that food in in that everybody eats it and you don't you don't it 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 transcends language really it is the most communicable form or the most communicable medium that I know of that everybody must uh, like enjoys and gets involved with yeah and I think for people maybe we need to explain a bit more about what it means to queer food yes yeah absolutely I guess within my context the the course that I studied at Goldsmiths it was really really interesting but uh well not but but um it was incredibly (laughs) it was very like theory heavy which was really really fascinating but I found it really hard to get involved in it because I think a lot of the time the, the the epitome of theory is to kind of condense all of these incredibly complex ideas into as as little as possible and so you end up with often really impenetrable writing, which I found myself reading sentences two, three times just to get a meaning for it. And I found it quite frustrating. And I think ultimately it's actually quite exclusive. It, it, despite the theories being so impacting on everyone, that they're, they're really not disseminated very well through uh, theoretical writing or academic writing because it is so you have to be within those circles to understand it. And so the the idea of creating queer food was kind of taking these theories and trying to translate them into the medium which I knew best, which was food. So that's kind of, uh, I guess, the the driving factor behind a, a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, to understand one theorist's work, you have to read another mm. and you have to build this whole base. And that can be really time consuming, it can be really impenetrable, as you say. So I do think that infusing food with all of these theories is actually a really innovative inclusive way to to bring these ideas to people absolutely i mean uh, yeah. with with um especially with academia and theoretical writing there is kind of like the the expected preface that you have a an education where you can understand these words you have the time and luxury to be able to like try and break down these really complex theories and yeah I mean I guess the inaccessibility really like hit me quite hard and so trying to communicate I don't know queer, th- queer theory is, is such an interesting topic and it affects everything um, I think may- maybe I mean I'm sure you've covered this before but I would kind of describe queer theory as queer theory is separate to queer identity uh, in a sense because queer identity is who you are and how and being non-normative but then queer theory can technically apply to anything so things that are non-normative in any context will be queer because they're non-normative they don't they don't adhere to like the the overarching theme so I think 
even if you're not queer or um, not interested or an ally or what, or what have you, it can it can impact everything. I mean, I guess a lot of people probably wouldn't agree with their um, non-normative practices being called queer, but within queer theory, that that's the impression that I got of, of it, which is why I'm so interested in trying to disseminate it and, and get more people interested and, and knowledgeable of it. But then I guess that does kind of presage it is important to differentiate between the two because if, if somebody is really interested in queer theory and they're not uh, of a queer identity, it's, it's, it can be, I guess, a little bit challenging if they're, try- if they're identifying with the theory but not the, the identity. Um, then There needs to be like some kind of barrier, but I think they, they, they do intermesh a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's a really exciting discussion because I've had straight friends who have been in polyamorous relationships and I or open relationships which is obviously subverting monogamy and I've been really excited because I've been able to go up to them and be like well you're queer too <laughs> you know and that's that's been quite and some of them have been really really shocked by that and been like no 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 and I'm like yes because you are mm. subverting the status quo this is non-normative behavior therefore queer absolutely yeah but I love I love your discernment between queer identity and queer theory because maybe they are being theoretically queer but not necessarily identifying as queer and there is a big difference with that yeah absolutely I mean I I wouldn't necessarily call uh like an organic or biodynamic farmer uh, a queer person but what they're doing is going against the whole like uh, with uh, sorry I'm bringing this into the context of my like periphery yeah please 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 conventional farming using the, the use of pesticides monocropping these like vast swathes of land which are passed over to one single crop that is normal that is a normative way of producing food in our day and age and it, it sustains the world and it's it is highly necessary to to a degree but then breaking away from that is kind of a queer act in and of itself but then maybe a farmer in Kent who does intercropping in a very traditional way might not identify themselves as queer i guess it, there's there's a level of, uh, a level of discernment that needs to come from both the yeah from the person who's doing the act yeah but it does it does give me a, a huge boost to be able to say to people who <laughs> <laughs> who sort of seem to be completely contained in straightness being like no 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 think again i, know. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. love it you don't know what you're doing we do <laughs> you're one of us <laughs> but going on with that like with your pr- production of of questioning queerness and infusing that into food and cooking are there any kind of foods that you feel are inherently queer in and of themselves or do you take food and transform it into something queer like what is your process with food and your materials so during my degree a large part of my practice was focusing on bread because as food is ubiquitous i think bread is also in many societies that is like the the core of people's idea of what food is and it's it's been the root of so many like political and social changes over over the centuries and bread is predominantly made with wheat which is uh, it, though it's not the largest the most widely grown crop in the world is still quite a devastating one it has quite uh wheat in particular has quite like a, a long colonial history of colonizers coming and settling in new lands planting vast fields of wheat to then start growing it for bread and it is it's very like entangled so in and I studied this uh, during during my studies I kind of I was focusing on how you can queer something so standard I guess as bread and my focus kind of uh, zoomed in on rye which as a crop I would say is inherently queer. I really want to explore this more, uh, potentially in a PhD at some point down the line. But I think that it's so it's a few of the tendencies of it, 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 rather than being quite like monogamous, if you will, 
uh, it's actually very hard to keep rye as a monocrop. So it'll like inter- interbreed with wild grasses that grow around it. And it's, it's very hard to like keep it contained as a single genetic species when you're planting it. I mean, the, the people are working towards trying to, what's it called, patent the seeds like they do with wheat and a lot of other, and corn predominantly. But it's, it's quite hard to actually like pin it down, very fluid. And then how that translates into cooking, the labor and the, the kind of intensive attitude that you have to take to baking bread, especially sourdough bread, you have to really like uh, put a lot of energy into it. And it's the idea of a sourdough loaf is this beautiful like tartine, as in the restaurant uh, loaf, like bloomer. Whereas with rye bread, you can just kind of like put things together. Uh, it doesn't really matter what ingredients you put in, um, just leave it. It kind of rises on its own cooks on its own it's, it's a very like minimal effort and it, it does it all on its own rather than needing all of that extra energy and input so i kind of like it's it's solidarity in that sense no maybe not solidarity unique Mm-mm. i don't know what the word is but there is a word for it <laughs> <laughs> what you said about rye bread and particularly the complexity variety it's non-normity of how it reproduces itself is really interesting you know it's not it's not going down a binary route it is being something fluid and it's almost uncontainable. And then it will respond and react in its own way. You don't have to interfere with it. You don't have to force it to do anything. Mm, and exactly. I suppose, you know, that's what society often commands is conforming behavior. And it, it has this expectation of what the outcome is meant to be and what it's meant to look like. And that you can, with the right education, the right system, control that. Whereas I suppose what you're saying with rye bread is actually there is this, it will become bread in on its own terms, in its own way, in its own time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if you, if the same kind of efforts were put into rye as they have been into wheat, then you probably could breed very like genetically singular and controlled crop. But it, that's kind of also where it's queer in its sense, because it hasn't had that like overarching focus for millennia to try and cram it down into one single line like I guess heteronormativity has with all of the rules and regulations, it has the freedom of not being controlled in that context. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about the legacy of these grains that we have at breakfast or on our bread or in our flour and all of those sorts of spaces. Mm. I often think about the elements of queerness and how you can queer the world around you and you know what is queer is it is it something that is sustainable is it something that is supportive of the self but then what happens I suppose when you have wheat bread can you avoid that can you take that out if it does have this colonial history if it does have this sort of like normative behavior Mm, I guess I mean it's it's such like it's so difficult to unpick the whole web that forms around it I guess I mean some of the reading that I've done has focused rather than focusing on wheat focused on gluten so the human obsession with gluten because that is what when when you're making a white loaf of bread the elasticity of the gluten the protein that's why you have to knead it to form these long chains of um, proteins, which then uh, let it rise and it has a, a big like bloomer, big air bubbles in it, uh, which is like the epitome of perfection, I guess, in the bread world. And so gluten is kind of the what what we've been chasing with our grain agriculture. And uh, wheat just happens to have the light, highest content of gluten. And whereas others like ray, uh, sorry, rye, oats, barley are, are far lower in their gluten content. Interesting. I hadn't even considered that. Because <laughs> I eat gluten. I'm not I'm not gluten-free, so gluten doesn't sort of enter into my consciousness. Oh, uh, yeah. nor am I at all. I, I mean, yeah, I love a beautiful sourdough loaf, so I, I can't. 
definitely can't complain. But what about anything else that you put into your your foods? Is there something, it's probably quite a cliche, but fruits, you know, are those quite queer in and of themselves? Yeah, I think so. I think, I guess the, the approach that I've taken to it predominantly is the, the use that the food has in, in general society and how that can be queered or whether that makes it queer. So with my most recent supper club, Queer and Cuisine, rather than looking like a particular uh, particular food, I was looking at the the idea of cuisine. So haute cuisine, which is led by this whole like French bastion of um, Escoffier who developed these techniques. And it's, it's kind of like the model for a lot of um, cooking around the world. And it's a, it's a really like militant, I mean, Escoffier himself, he was a, a military chef who then uh, worked at the Brits and he created this whole hierarchy of chef de cuisine and down and it's, it's like based on a militaristic system and so I, I was taking this idea of cuisine like this uh, perfect perfection of food and trying to subvert it and and I guess this is uh, I talked to you pre- previously about notes on camp by Susan Sontag and her way that she describes camp as being subversive and and she's placitous and it's got several different meanings and so I think a lot of her ideas of, of these kind of like meanings for the cognoscenti and for the wider society as well really impacted me. And I guess a few examples would probably actually help rather than just me talking about <laughs> theories. I was, uh, I was instead of doing for the entree, it was instead of foie gras, it was foie gras using mushrooms and making a pate from that and then that was served on rye bread and then I made a what was it a wild garlic caviar so instead of caviar like uh-huh. per, 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 making a wild garlic paste and then make um with agar and making pearls from it but yeah I guess, I guess I mean there's so many different facets of it the the directions that it can go and the shape that it can take I've explored that quite a bit with uh, different types of baking different shapes of bread so I've, I've made bread in the shape of condoms thinking about like prophylaxis and how these predominantly make them a white bread so it's like the prevention of it's all contained in this thing that is like stopping the spread of um seed if you will and then i've i've um bent the bread tin the which i kind of associate with being like the exemplary domestic utensil like the square rigid bread tin it it holds everything in Uh, every kitchen has it so by bending it and making it into different shapes, it kind of subverts it in in a in a way, and then baking rye bread in it rather than um, gluten, uh, sorry, rather than wheat bread. You've got so many different elements. It's not just about the food food itself, but also the process. Mm. And yeah, I think notes on camp is a really interesting point to take because it is about excess flamboyance, and we were also talking off camera about time, mm. about being able to take time and be elaborate and be excessive in using ingredients that you wouldn't necessarily be able to use in a working kitchen yes yeah absolutely so i i guess there's also creating a space of queer exploration yeah that's something else that is kind of happening in this of of you taking the time to explore different potentials with different ingredients and yeah questioning that that, i suppose militarism of a space where you have an expected outcome each and every time yeah absolutely and i think i mentioned to you previously as well the idea and I've written and researched a bit into this of the, the supper club being a queer act in and of itself because the supper club, it has like a very long history of yes, being yes. A kind of a, a private, intimate space. I mean, more recently, social dining has uh, it's kind of like boomed into this huge thing, but it's it's really got, it's, uh, got a very long history, which goes back a couple of thousand years of different forms of social dining. But the contemporary supper club, it offers a space not only for the chef, but also the guests or rather not chef, cook, I would say, who the cook can be anyone. They don't have to be trained through all of these different levels to become a chef. 
and the guests don't have to adhere to this kind of, or, uh, unless that is the theme of the soccer club, but they don't have to adhere to this rigid like uh, isolation of sitting with just a couple on the table and the presentation that comes with it, it it's a far more relaxed and it offers an open space for any identities, be they queer or not, to flourish and not feel like they're constrained with the whole cuisine environment. I suppose that you are creating kind of community within that role and giving people a safe space and I think it's quite interesting to have queer food for queer people that's quite a powerful Mm. embrace that you're giving you're you're literally nourishing people with food and with freedom and with safety yeah absolutely and I think one area which we did touch upon previously which I think is really important when it comes to the idea of queer food is fermentation in any of and all of its aspects i mean it's it's a lot of fermentation is very much like uh, constrained down into a conventional format but it's wild fermentation so not like commercial yeast or coffee or chocolate that you'll buy which is like mass produced wild fermentation instead is using the the yeast that floating around us in the air or on your hands or or already on the plant that you're fermenting that you're kind of it's, it's interspecies collaboration where you're creating these new forms and I've kind of, I've, I've looked into it before, likening it to non-normative forms of reproduction, because you're creating you and these multi-species, this multi-species collaboration between you and the mic- uh, microbes and the, the vegetables, etc. You're creating new forms and sometimes unknown forms. So a lot of the time, rather than fermenting for any, any like specific product at the end, I kind of like to experiment by just putting the kind of the bare basics in. So putting enough salt to keep out the bad microbes so that it can be edible. And then just seeing what happens, not necessarily eating at the end, but just watching it kind of transform and change into this new shape. Sometimes it goes very wrong, but a lot of times uh, it does come out quite well. And it's delicious. (laughs) That's so interesting because I was reading this amazing article that we're all queer communities within our own body. You know, we have specific bacteria that we have. We share our our body with so many other, well, non-visible to Mm. the human eye, sort of animals and creatures on our body. Absolutely. I quite like that we are now having this conversation where it's about or I'm using the bacteria that's on my hands or that's already there. It's not that I have to find this specific thing. I don't have to sterilize myself. And it can be this kind of symbiotic relationship, not just between you and your body and what you're going to eat and put in it, but also how you're going to use it to cook. And Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if, if listeners are interested, Sandor Katt, he's an American fermenter. He's, he's written a few different books on fermentation and he's queer himself. He lives in a, or I think he used to live in a commune and he has uh, one, of, one of his books that really impacted me. It's, it's more of a picture book than a theory book, which I really like. It's very close-up images of fermentation going on and maybe like a paragraph per page rather than being like dense text. But he calls it fermentation as metaphor. And he goes through all of the different social and cultural metaphors which fermentation can kind of like intermingle. And it's when you read it, it is really incredible to just see all of these different avenues and areas of which fermentation can make you really like think about what what normal is and how we can subvert that i mean that's a, that's a word that is so funny isn't it normal i keep on thinking about <laughs> what is what is my normal what is my normal day to day what is my normal experience what is normal and whether that's the same i mean we all know it's not the same for everybody but how do you just be normal and and yeah i think that's again what really appealed to me about your practice when i was sort of discovering you through instagram was like wow this food which as you say is universal it doesn't have to be normal absolutely yeah you know i hate eating sandwiches <laughs> because when you go and buy them at the supermarket or or at a cafe or whatever 
it's so often so tedious the flavors are so bland and i always joke that it's incredibly colonial i think they indenture the worker it's all about eating fast and getting you back to work and i'm like i don't want to do this i don't want to put these sandwiches in my body and i feel like there needs to be more time spent to elevating food having different foods and yeah not being normal absolutely yeah i think that's actually a really interesting one the the foods that have been created to indenture the worker so sandwiches are by and like like you say by and large they are um they have they were created as a format for or as far as i know people working in uh, like um agricultural workers in fields who needed to have like a good solid amount of food and then i guess similarly kind of like the pasty it's it's been created i'm not saying that the pasty is bad they're delicious but it's been created for miners to be able to hold the crust of it while they eat it quickly with all of the package in there so they can get back to work. And though obviously work is essential for many of us, we do live in a time where we, we don't have to necessarily adhere to eating like a quick sandwich from Sainsbury's. We, we can actually like relax into food a little bit more, like you say. Yeah, and I think that that is something that you, you've been working on, haven't you? Because I remember you saying to me that you did this uh, magazine and you sent out uh, within the magazine a starter for people. Mm, yeah. So I like that you're enabling people's own food productions. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. It, it goes back to the, the, I'm really interested in this idea of non, non-normative reproduction. And the magazine was, it taught, it, it was called Radical Queer Bakers. And it, it talked about, it was, it was kind of based on the Radical Queer Fairies. They were a commune who existed in America of queer men predominantly. And they created this magazine, which is all about queering landscapes. And it's it's a really, really old and still running magazine. I've got a few issues of it. And it was kind of based on that. And the, the main body of the magazine was talking about what I've kind of been discussing about agriculture and approaches to land management. And then within the magazine was also a recipe for my sourdough rye. And then this dry sample of uh, like very cheesy smelling starter and a little badge with it as well which says spread my seed so it was, it was kind of like again playing on Susan Sontag's like a like cheeky little um metaphors and and double meanings to to pass on to the next generation of uh, microbes and humans interested in collaborating with them yeah but i mean still you're enabling people to have uh, more interesting bread for their sandwiches yes yeah <laughs> first and foremost no i love that you're doing that kind of cheeky play with people's lives as well and trying to kind of get people to think about well yeah this yeast this starter this whatever this has come from somewhere else who made this and like I've often wondered with those starters that you can buy like where is this from like whose is this because some people like Mm. grow them and give them away as presents and protect them and so yet for you to sort of be giving them out is quite interesting as well because you've got a you've got a a connection a legacy with that yeah absolutely I've, I've also recently I got inspired by a seminar that I watched and with when when I'm meeting up with fellow chefs or artists, I'll try and suggest that we each bring along a ferment or or something to exchange. So bringing along a little bit of what you've created and and crossing it over, and maybe you can use their ferment to start another ferment, or you can just eat it and ingest it. But that like kind of crossover of of what you've created between different people interested in the same thing, yeah, I find it quite powerful. Is there anything that you would suggest for people to do in their like day to day cooking that could queer their own cuisine, or is there a recipe book? Or- or something that that you find particularly helpful when you're trying to think about these things? I guess, I mean, I would I'd probably go back to fermentation as being something that people 
could do because it is i mean there's as with all kinds of cooking it, it's a scale you can get like very complex ferments which take months and months to create or you can literally just like put a few things in a jar and leave them for a couple of weeks and i think it's a very it's good because it engenders what you were saying before about having to having to make time but it's not time consuming say you had a batch of i was going to say wild garlic as an example but that's not necessarily a very accessible thing for many people but you had some kind of herb lacto fermentation is such a simple thing to do um you just take the weight of whatever the herb it is that you have and then you add two percent salt massage it in the salt via osmosis starts drawing the liquid out of the the herb and then you put it in a jar, tamp it down until the water level has come up and then you put a crock weight in, which is, um, I mean, I use a, a zip bag filled with water, put it in just so the water line is above all of the produce in the jar and then you just leave it for a week or two and it, it takes on this, the, the complexity of the flavours just like absolutely explode and it's such an easy thing to do and it's really hard to get it wrong, to be honest. As long as it's 2% salt, you're pretty much fine. And yeah, uh, just like... In, in ingesting it, you're you're then bringing all of those microbes into your body as well. Because fermentation often makes nutrients that aren't necessarily bioavailable available, which means things that our body can't digest day to day. If you ferment them, then they can. So the, the, the microbes make them possible for, for our body to absorb. And so just by creating this thing, you're, you're making yourself healthier. You're, I think, mentally healthier as well by making it. And it's there's a sense of accomplishment that comes with the little jar of fermentation, mm. which I think is, well, I guess some people might compare it to having a, ch- a child or something. Yeah, I mean, I'm just <laughs> starting to make my own kimchi and I'm getting very invested in its success yes it's wonderful being invested in such like a such a relaxed well I, I find it relaxing anyway but just that level of investment in something which isn't driven for like speed and and production and progress just being able to like relax into it and watch it day by day changing and then get to enjoy it at the end yeah it's delicious <laughs> it really enriches it enriches the norm the normal life yes yeah exactly in every sense of the word definitely and so you also have another magazine that you have on your website called finger food magazine yes um can you tell us a little bit about that as well what what's the focus of this scene so finger food it kind of came so i, I founded it with my brother during lockdown because there wasn't really much opportunity for me to work as a chef. I ended up going home to where my parents live in Bath, which is in they live on the edge of the city. So I had a free access to the countryside, which was an absolute joy. And during that time, I, I found myself creating a lot of food-focused artwork and different projects. But I found it incredibly hard to find a platform through through which to kind of share these projects. And I, I found it quite frustrating. And so it kind of that frustration led me to the point where I was like, well. I'm just going to start my own, which <laughs> was maybe, I mean, it's a lot of work. Uh, everybody told me it would be a lot of work and I now appreciate that. But it's it's basically the idea behind it is a space for people who explore the confluence in food and art, be it through writing, poetry, illustration, any kind of project, photography, basically anything creative. Yeah, a platform for them to express themselves freely and just trying to build, I guess, a community of people who are interested in similar things. Because I think a lot of the time... It's, it's not a niche interest, food and art, and the confluence thereof, but it can sometimes feel like you're in a bit of an echo chamber unless you have people who, are, who have similar interests. And so trying to create that community of people who can share their ideas and, and cross-pollinate, if you will, has been really fulfilling. And hopefully I'm finalising the second issue now, which has been a bit of a long time coming, but I'm hoping to launch it in the next month or two. That's so exciting because it, the first edition looks really, really interesting. Thank you. And I love that you've kind of 
brought lots of different people together because there's this idea that art and food, the only way that they can intersect is kind of through appearance. Mm. Whereas what you're doing with your supper clubs and with your ideas and your theories is you're actually imbuing the whole thing with some kind of creative focus. And so I can imagine that for um, a zine, you're actually elevating that even further with collaborators and it, it, it can be about how it looks, but also about so much more. How what what flavors you're combining, what processes you're you're producing. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I've tried to. I mean, there, there's a certain like amount of power which comes with being an editor, and I say that in a very like conscious sense because you are selecting the pieces. I mean, it's not a large enough magazine that I'm turning away pieces, <laughs> which is great. But it is it is about orchestrating this space, and I think food being so ubiquitous means so much to different people. And it has so many cultural and social connotations with it. And so I I really enjoy getting such an influx of different voices who associate food with their upbringing in a different country or their heritage or the, the, the place where they are now. Being able to like explore that and understand different people's approaches to food is, is I, I mean, I'm going to say it's fulfilling again because it is. <laughs> that's that's great. I, I think mm. it's great to be fulfilled. And I guess you you fill, fill other people up with delicious food. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit more about the community that you've kind of built through food and what it feels like to communicate through food whether there's something that you've learned in it that you've been surprised by. I guess the way that people communicate through food is really interesting because obviously there are so many different forms of it. And I think one of the predominant ones is nourishment. So the the kind of feeling that you get when you cook something for someone else and, and the enjoyment of sharing it with them. And that's, that is very much tied, I think, with familial or extra familial relationships where parent to child or sibling to sibling or grandparents, they're, they're passing on these recipes and they're cooking them. And it's, it's like a tangible example of information passing, if you will. Interestingly, I wish that I were more that kind of person. But when it comes to cooking, I kind of I really enjoy making things that make people go a bit like, huh, I, I want them to be a little bit shocked by it I, I like I guess maybe this says something about my character but <laughs> as much as I like cooking for people um I find it a little bit I think boring is probably the wrong word but I've, I don't really get much fulfillment from like having dinner parties and things like that I really like spending my time making these like elaborately strange foods and shocking people through them which I guess is a different kind of information in and of itself. And I I think you can probably say that kind of ties up back a little bit to my queer identity as well. I, I like the idea of, of not being normal or not being normative rather and, and uh, doing like a little bit of a making people think. Yes, yeah, so I, I guess it kind of ties into that. I've, I feel like I painted myself as a very like uh, inhospitable person. <laughs> no, I don't think so at all. I think that's very exciting. I I definitely have a similar kind of feeling when I'm... So I do a lot of work with art, not history, and I get really bored by conventional images. So I think it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, Mm. I want people to be shocked or confronted or challenged. And I had this, I had this conversation with my sister the other day of talking about going to an exhibition. And I was like, I find it so boring. Like it was such a generic exhibition. 
And my sister was like, yeah, but sometimes I don't want to go and have to confront the self every time. I don't want to have an existential crisis in every exhibition I go to. <laughs> Whereas I do. I want to challenge the self. I want to challenge potential. And I think maybe that's what you're doing with food, of being like, actually, food can be like this. We don't have to just be pedestrian. We can be excessive. We can be shocking. We can be all of those things. Absolutely, yeah. I get, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> I'm so behind that, I guess. One of the one of the problems with food is that you literally need it daily. So trying to shock yourself daily or, or develop new things daily. I, I find myself getting into when I'm cooking for myself, I, I really like knowing what goes into my food. So I'll rather cook than eat out or I mean, I love eating out, but I, I really like knowing everything that, I'm, that that goes on. And so I'll often get into ruts where I like preserve my creative energy for experimentation and I'll eat the same kind of I mean, it's not a bad dish but I'll I'll make the same food because I know the routine and I can do it without like mm. expending too too much of my thinking and then I can conserve that creative energy for creating something a little bit wilder I guess. Do you have a signature dish? Mm, I guess my rye bread I would say was probably my signature mm. dish that's the one that I definitely focused the most on and uh, developed the most. No I can see that I think that's quite that's a good one. <laughs> I've just also I, this is what I ask everyone who comes on the podcast because I the the motivation of this was really to explore the breadth, the variety, the complexity of queerness and joy and what brings people joy and positivity. And I was just wondering if there's been anything in your life at the minute that's been bringing you joy and happiness and pleasure. I think probably building this this network or building like a, a, a facilitating the exchange of ideas. So I've realised in the past few months since graduating that, I mean, I think a lot of unis kind of set you up for the idea that you'll graduate and then suddenly a job will land in your lap and you'll have a great time. But it's the, the proactivity of actually reaching out to people, um, not necessarily for jobs, or work but reaching out to people who I think are interesting um, on different platforms and just sending them a message and saying I love what you're doing tell me more I want to hear more and it's it's led to meeting up with uh, going for coffee or going to exhibitions or what have you with multiple people and that really does bring me joy because I can it's building this network of similar interests and being able to like talk about weird things that I do and people actually understand me rather than kind of glazing over and being like oh yeah yeah you're bred oh yeah <laughs> oh no way no that's really good I do I do think that that is essential is finding people who respect what you're doing and who you feel respected by and yeah br- bringing more to your life bringing more out in you and you and them Yes, that's absolutely. a really important, important part of it, important part of joy as well is feeling, yeah, like you have that community that you can be your full weird self. I think so. Non-normative self, I should exactly. say. Exactly. <laughs> so what's next? What is happening? You've got the release of Finger Food magazine, volume two. Have you got any more supper clubs coming up? And where can people find out more about you and your project? Best place would be either on my website, which is Barney Powell. That's... Uh, pau.com or my instagram barney powell again pau the next up club that i'm doing uh, i'm really excited about it. it's in collaboration with a, one of my best friends from childhood who i grew up with in bath called hannah morgan and she's a very talented photographer analog photographer who is currently experimenting with sustainable photography so she'll use forage ingredients like nettles and things like that and the chemicals in them certain um, forage ingredients you can develop photos in which is absolutely mind-blowing for me and so I'm developing a menu of food based on the ingredients that she uses to develop her photos and she'll have them exhibited on the wall of the gallery and then I'll serve the food at the same time and it's kind of like an immersive experience in that sense 
which I'm really excited for. That sounds incredible. Yeah. I'm really excited for that. That sounds so cool. I love that. Again, no, I'm really that excited. intersection. I guess that's what you were talking about as well with your Finger Food magazine of different perspectives of food and its usage and forgetting that actually it's not just about like what's on the plate, but also the potential other uses of all of the objects yes, on the plate. Absolutely, you know, that's yeah. really interesting. I love the sound of that. And then going back to the theory side of it earlier, I'm really excited to um, have been invited to write a, because a lot of my back, uh, practice is focused on writing, to write a six-part series for Mold Magazine, who have been like my kind of idols for uh, years and who I got interested in food because of largely, which will be, I'm thinking it'll be about querying theory so taking these like really complex theories and trying to disseminate them widely. So I guess querying the whole sense of academia and boiling it down to a really communicable format, which is going to be incredibly challenging, but I'm up for it and I'm very excited. That's amazing. I love it when people are succeeding and getting to do their dream things and work with their dream people. Yes, yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled, honestly. Well, I look forward to reading and eating more <laughs> things with and about you. So I think that'd be great. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been phenomenal. Thank you so much for having me. I've honestly had the best time. Thank you. And <laughs> we'll definitely try and do something soon. I'd love to hear more about how all of the supper clubs goes, particularly with the collaboration between arts and cooking. And yeah, there's so much more to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to hear it, um, to listen to uh, the other podcasts available. Yes. So the podcasts come out every Thursday. So we've had two episodes come out already. Uh, by the time you listen to this, there'll have been a third one already dropped. And yeah, if you want to keep track of it, you go to inclusive.world, that's N-C-L-U-S-I-V.world, either online or you can, it's the same name for Instagram, inclusive.world. And there you can have a look at different podcasts that we've got. And we've got some really good organic, sustainable designs that you can purchase, which will, a percentage of which will go to charities for um, LGBTQA plus work across the UK. So there's a lot that you can kind of have a have a look at amazing yeah. inclusive.world yeah oh i'm very excited to check that out yeah hopefully. i mean it's quite small it's small at the minute <laughs> but hopefully we're growing hopefully we're growing yeah <laughs> perfect well thanks so much bonnie and i will i will keep track and i'm sure we'll be in touch soon amazing thank you to hear more about barney's work then you can check it out at barneypow.com or on instagram at barneypow that's p-a-u and if you want to hear more from us then you can check us out both online and on instagram at inclusive.world world that's n-c-l-u-s-i-v dot world and you can catch up on all of our podcast episodes see all of our cultural information on our instagram posts and have a look at our 100 percent organic sustainable apparel that looks really great and will help you celebrate your queer pride and i will see you next week for another episode of this podcast and have a lovely week have a lovely time i can't wait it'll be really really fun and yeah, I hope you're all enjoying Pride. Lots of love. Bye. See you next Thursday. <laughs>